Welcome to the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Axel Ragnarsson, and on this show, I dissect how seasoned multifamily investors started, built, and scaled their businesses. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another quick solo episode here on the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. I say quick solo episode. This one might be a little bit longer because in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the nine most frequently asked questions that I receive from prospective investors or LPs as it relates to passively investing in syndications, investing as a limited partner. Constantly speaking with investors that are interested in learning more, both at a high level around passively investing and then also potentially with us in our business. And these are questions that I regularly get. So I figured it'd be helpful to make an episode about this. I did an episode similar to this a couple of years ago, but I wanted uh, to drop a refresh because there's a whole lot of new listeners to the podcast that maybe haven't listened that far back, as well as the fact that some of the answers are slightly different nowadays, just as it relates to how I generally approach these questions. So great episode to listen to, regardless of whether or not you're an active investor who is having these conversations with LPs and you want to understand how to best navigate these questions or if you're an LP that just wants to learn more about passively investing in syndications. So let's jump right into it. First question I get most often, who can invest in real estate syndications? And when I say that, it's there's some element of nuance there, like what does my personal financial situation need to be? Do I need to be accredited? Do I need to understand, you know, like is there anything else that I need to know as it relates to whether or not I can invest into a syndication or into a private real estate transaction? And just as a quick disclaimer, as an aside, as I work through this conversation, I'm going to be using terms like GP, sponsor, operator, interchangeably, right? Anytime you hear that word, it's me describing the active investor that is putting the deal together and is actually going out there and running it and raising the capital. Those are all interchangeable terms as I use them throughout this episode. But back to it, who can, I, who can invest in real estate syndication? Long story short, anybody can, right? You don't need to be accredited to invest in a real estate syndication, but it matters what the offering type is. You'll most commonly see two types of offerings, Reg D 506B offerings and Reg D 506C offerings. Reg B offerings can accept up to 35 non-accredited investors, but the operator, the sponsor can't go out and publicly advertise the offering and they need a substantive relationship with all of the individuals, all of the investors that are participating. So opens the door to non-accredited, but they can't go advertise it, right? 506C syndications can only accept accredited investors and that's verified during the actual investment process, but those sponsors can go openly advertise that. They can talk about it on TV, drop flyers from the sky, talk about it on their Instagram account, LinkedIn, whatever, right? They can advertise through all channels. So long story short, anybody can, but it de depends on the offering. And the little nuance here too is even if you're non-accredited, oftentimes the investment minimums are going to be at least 25 grand, most of the time 50 grand for most syndications outside of really specialized kind of crowdfunding type of type of deals, right? Maybe you're talking like a fundraiser or CrowdStreet. Those I'm going to put aside for a second. But if we're talking about offerings run by operators who are raising retail capital that are not a crowdfunding platform, you're probably going to see 25K minimums. So you, you still need some level of liquidity. You still need a significant chunk of investable assets for that to be a wise investment relative to the capital you have to put to work. So even if you're non-accredited, you should in my opinion, you should be holding off on doing these types of deals until you're either accredited or right at that line, uh, just given the investment minimums. Question number two, can I invest in my retirement account? Again, short answer is yes, but it depends on the retirement account that you have. If you have a self-directed IRA or some kind of self-directed retirement account, 
you can oftentimes direct those funds into private real estate transactions and into syndications, which is an extremely powerful way to invest retirement funds because one of the drawbacks of investing in private real estate deals, right, syndications, is that it's illiquid. But if you're investing through a retirement account, you're not accessing those funds anyways. So you're removing one of the common deterrents into doing this type of investing. There's all kinds of different companies that you can, can that can help you convert your retirement account into something that's self-directed. Uh, Horizon Trust is one that we're familiar with that I would recommend. But there's various different custodians that can help you with this. But again, it depends on your retirement account. It needs to have some kind of a self-directed component. And if so, the answer then becomes yes, right? And I think that that's a very powerful way to invest. And we have many investors in our deals that invest through self-directed retirement vehicles. Question number three, what's going to be my return on investment? Probably the most vague question that I get, right? Or, you know, what's a typical ROI? Very vague, right? But I'm going to try and distill it into three categories and then talk about the ranges as it relates to the spectrums of returns. Oftentimes, you'll see syndicators advertise three different uh, types of returns. Cash on cash returns, internal rate of returns, otherwise known as IRRs, and equity multiples. Those are typically the three most common. Cash on cash returns is just a calculation to, to calculate what is an investor going to receive in actual cash distributions annually throughout the hold period? And then we average that rate of return over the hold period itself. Maybe that's three, five, seven years, whatever it is. And then we have our projected cash on cash return. That measures cash distributed to investors, right? That's different than an IRR, which actually accounts for capital events, such as refinances or sales when we're delivering return of capital distributions. And uh, an IRR is a mechanism that weighs cash flow that is occurring or you know just distributions or return of capital events that occur earlier in the hold period more heavily than later right it, it takes into account the time value time value of money excuse me and and is an i and is a is a return metric that more that more effectively captures the total return that an investor is receiving as it relates to paying down the debt capital events etc right outside of just cash distributions equity multiple is a very simple calculation that tracks or that communicates what are you receiving back as an investor in terms of total distributions all around the board, cash flow distributions, and then return of capital distributions compared to your original investment, right? So if you're an investor that invests $50,000 and you receive $50,000 in cash flow, and then you receive $50,000 upon sale, the return of your original investment, and you receive $100,000 back in total in five years on a $50,000 investment, well, then you have a 2.0 equity multiple, right? You doubled your money. And that's what that metric calculates. And as it relates to what your investment returns are going to be, it's completely dependent on the market, the, the deal, the structure. There's such a wide range, right? A, a class A multifamily deal in Miami, Florida is going to return different or, or is going to be a company with different projected returns than a class C deal in Kansas, right? Those are two very different investments and they're going to have very different investment profiles in terms of the returns. Now, with that being said, there's some typical ranges. Cash on cash returns probably going to be anywhere from 5 to 10%. If you're investing in a multifamily syndication, 10% being a tertiary market, that's maybe a little bit more of a risky deal. And then 5% might be more of a core deal, right? Uh, and something that's in a major city that's built in the last 20 years, right? Those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. IRR is probably going to be anywhere from 10% to 20%. Again, totally dependent on the risk profile of the deal. Equity multiple, maybe that's a one five to a to a two two or a little bit over a two. Again, very dependent on the investment. So that's not something that I'm going to be able to get into here. 
But those are some very safe ranges to communicate. Question four, what is my downside risk? Beauty of investing in a syndication as an LP is that your downside risk is limited to your original investment. Because you are not signing on the loan and because typically the operating agreement and the documents are going to stipulate that legal recourse falls on the operator or the sponsor or the general partners, your downside risk is typically just limited to your original investment. Now, you need to confirm that with the docs, but that is fundamentally one of the reasons that LPs typically like investing as an LP is that they're not on the hook as it relates to legal and debt and their downsides limited to their original investment. But again, consult the, you know, look at the docs relative to each specific offering, have a conversation with an attorney about that. But fundamentally speaking, that is typically the case. Question five, how often are distributions sent and how are they sent? Again, depends. In our business, we use an investor management platform to govern that process. So we send our distributions via both check or ACH, depending on how an investor wants to receive them. And we typically do quarterly distributions in our business, although we do have some deals where we send monthly. But again, it's going to be dependent on the sponsor and the operator and and what they typically do. You could typically assume quarterly distributions that start some periods of time, you know, six, nine, 12 months after initially closing the deal. If you're investing in a value add project where there's going to be some construction when you close, kind of have to get the property to stabilization before it's producing enough cash to start making those distributions. So dependent on the deal, dependent on the sponsor, but you can assume quarterly is a normal cadence from a distribution standpoint. Question six, how can I get my money out if I need access to it? This is one of the downsides of investing in a syndication or a private real estate transaction or investing in real estate in general is it's not necessarily liquid, right? When you buy an equity, you buy a stock, you can go on E-Trade the next day and sell it, right? If you're selling it during market hours, it's a very liquid marketplace. It's not the case when you invest in real estate. These are illiquid deals. And typically when you're investing in a syndication, you're accepting that that money is going to be returned to you at some point, whether it's after a refinance or after a sale, but that's going to take place likely multiple years down the line. And you may receive distributions before then, but you're not going to be seeing a a bulk return of capital until there's value creation, until it makes sense to do that. And along the way, you can't just sell your shares and get your money back out. There are ways to do that. It's not like it's literally impossible, right? There are ways to to facilitate getting out of a deal with your sponsor if that's something that you need to do. Maybe the sponsor buys the shares. Maybe they sell it to another investor that's already in the deal. But it's very time-consuming. It's very cumbersome. And it's typically expensive from a legal doc standpoint as well. And operators are are not interested in accepting investments from LPs that are going to take them down that road or where they even think that's a risk in terms of accepting capital from someone that might need it out. So. When you invest in a syndication, you should be accepting that once you wire those funds, you're not going to see them back for a meaningful period of time. And if you are if you are someone that might need that money, then you shouldn't be investing in private real estate deals to begin with. Question seven, how is investing in a syndication as a limited partner different than investing in a REIT? Main difference is when you invest in a syndication, you are investing in the entity that is then acquiring the property. So therefore, you're receiving the direct benefits of real estate ownership. When you get a K-1, your partnership, K-1 at the end of the year from a tax standpoint, you're going to see some you know, deductions on there. You might see some tax benefits if your sponsor did a bonus depreciation study and therefore took a bunch of depreciation as in passing paper losses on to all of the LPs. There are typically more direct tax benefits associated with investing directly into a real estate syndication comparatively to investing in a REIT where you're fundamentally buying shares in the company that is going out there and handling all of these transactions. You're basically buying a stock 
And therefore, you're not seeing the same level of pass-through economics from a tax advantage standpoint. So it's fundamentally buying directly into a piece of real estate versus buying equities, right? You're buying a stock in a company that's going out there and acquiring real estate. That's kind of the, the, the major key difference. Question eight, how are deals actually structured both legally and economically? Now, there are various different legal structures and various different economic and financial structures. So again, this is a hard question to answer, but I'm going to talk about it in the most broad sense. From a legal structure standpoint, typically when you're investing in a syndication, at least a single asset syndication, where somebody's raising capital to buy one specific property or properties, right? Not a fund where you're sending money and then the and then the sponsor's going out there and figuring out what to do with it afterwards. Let's just, for example, say, say we're talking about buying a single asset or a portfolio. It's basically your the the operator's raising capital to consummate this one transaction or to capitalize this one transaction. So typically what happens is investors are going to invest into an LLC, a single purpose entity that's used to go out there and take title to the real estate. And it's very similar to thinking about investing in a business, right? You can invest in this new business entity, one to, you know, uh, Main Street Flooring LLC. And then this, the person that's running that business is going to go out there and grow that business and you own a percentage of that business. That's basically happening in a real estate syndication. You're investing in this single purpose entity. And the purpose of this business is to acquire this piece of real estate, create value, then sell and deliver returns to their investors, right? That's fundamentally what you're doing. So what you're actually investing in is the shares in the LLC that is then buying the real estate itself. So you're not directly on the deed of the real estate. You're you're investing alongside other investors and alongside the sponsors into an LLC that then takes title to the real estate. And then there's the operating agreement that governs that LLC and governs how returns are handled, et cetera. From an economic standpoint, let's talk about that. So the most common structure that you're going to see in syndicated real estate deals is some kind of preferred rate of return and then a split above that. And then there might be some fees that are being charged by the sponsors as it relates to putting the deal together and compensating them for the work they've done to put the deal together. And that's separate from the preferred return and then the hurdle above that. Easiest way to communicate what, what a preferred return and a hurdle is. Preferred return is the non-guaranteed rate of return that is due to the investors before the sponsor gets into what's called their promote. So let's say you have an 8% preferred return and then a 70-30 split above that, 70% of the upside, as we call it, going to the investors, 30% going to the sponsor. What that means is the first 8% worth of distributions is going to the investors and anything that exceeds that is then split between the LPs and the GP. And that's where the GP makes their money. That's where the operator really makes their money is, is doing well on the deal and delivering in excess of the preferred return. And then they get to take their percentage interest in the profits of the deal, so to speak. And now there's all kinds of complex structures as it relates to like tiered waterfalls where, you know, first 8% goes to the investors and then there's some kind of split until another rate of return. And then there's a more advantageous split to the operators and then there's another rate like there's all kinds of different ways that you can structure it but foundationally most of these deals are structured in the sense that you have a preferred return with a split above that and then it starts to get a little bit more complex from there depending on the size of the deal and who the folks are that are participating in it but if you have a foundational understanding of that you're going to be well on your way to investing in these deals and understanding them last question question nine what does the investment process actually look like in terms of the steps and the timelines, et cetera? So typically what happens here is operator finds a deal. They need to go out there and raise capital. 
So they go and take it out to their investor list and they share a pitch deck and they share whether it's a 506B or a 506C syndication or if there's some other structure. And uh, they start talking about the deal itself, the market, the business plan, et cetera, et cetera. And usually a sponsor is doing that after they have gotten past the physical due diligence part of the process, right? And they know that this is a property that they're going to buy. They're probably going to be working towards closing here. Maybe they have 30 days, 45 days, some period of time before closing. So then they take it out to their list and they'll typically start collecting either soft commitments or having individuals sign documents and wire capital right away. Depends on who it is. So, and it really depends on their timeline. But really what happens here as an investor, if we're talking about what, what's happening to the investor, you receive all of the information, maybe get a call or get on a phone call with the sponsor, asking them, asking, you know, ask some clarifying questions about the deal, the structure, et cetera. You know, you check with your spouse and you, you make an investment decision, right? In that first couple of weeks. What happens after that is you take a look at typically the PPM, the private placement memorandum that's provided by the sponsor, which outlines in, in, ex, in exhaustive depth the, the market opportunity, the team bio, the, the business plan, the financial structure, a schedule of any fees. You know, these are 40, 50, 60 page documents, basically acting as all of the disclosures around the deal. You review that, you sign that. You also sign a joinder to the operating agreement where you accept the terms of the operating agreement. And then you fund the actual entity. Maybe you're going to invest 50 grand. So you wire 50 grand into the LLC's operating account that's going to close the deal. And then when the day of closing comes around, the, the operator goes in there and wires the funds required to close from the LLC's operating account and then starts to begin the actual project, right? And that, that all takes, pay, takes place post-closing. But in general, this is like a 30-day process, 45-day process if the if the operator's got more time to close. You know, maybe they're doing a webinar, maybe they're, you know, hopping on a bunch of different calls with investors, but they're raising capital over this period of time. And as an LP, you typically have a couple of weeks, few weeks to make an investment decision after reviewing all the documents, maybe going and watching a webinar, maybe speaking with the sponsor, you know, one-to-one over the phone. And then you wire your funds and those funds are used to assist in the actual funding of the closing, and then any leftover funds might be used for reserves or for other purposes to help with construction, et cetera. And then you actually get into the deal itself. So hopefully this was helpful to all of you out there. I know this is, this is a much longer episode, but I want it to be exhaustive. And this is something that I want to use as a resource as well for LPs in the future that want to come up to speed on the fundamentals of actually doing this type of investing. If you are not on our list, and I'm going to say this as well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not on the Aligned Real Estate Partners Investor List, Highly recommend you do so. Uh, we're going to be taking out a handful of deals this year. We're starting to finally see the market open up a little bit. And we think we're going to do a much higher volume this year than we did last year, just based on a lot of the LOIs we're getting out and a lot of the feedback we're getting from sellers we're speaking with. So be sure to get on our list. You can do so at alignedrep.com slash invest. That's A-L-I-G-N-E-D, alignedrep.com slash invest. Link will also be in the show notes as well to go ahead and do that. And uh, we'll get you on our list so that you see our offerings when we actually take them out. But again, thank you for listening and I'll catch you guys on the next episode. 